If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I arrived in Paris for the first time, came out of the Gare du Nord and saw these policemen, you know, in their little white caps, and they all they were carrying little white batons in those days, directing the traffic. And then there was the Eiffel Tower, you know. And I said to myself, I'm This is Paris. So I remember it as if it was yesterday now, and the excitement of it. That was John Julius Norwich talking about his personal connections to the history of France. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's interview, we're going to be talking to John Julius Norwich, a historian and author whose literary career stretches back more than 50 years. His latest book, France, A History from Gaul to De Gaulle, is published this week and, as the title suggests, covers more than 2,000 years of France's story. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with John Julius in his London home to find out more about his take on French history and his own part in some of these events. 
So I'm joined by John Julius Norwich. And so your latest book is France, A History from Gaul to de Gaulle. It's quite a lot to cover there, isn't there? There's a good deal to cover, but I rather like covering long areas. It means you don't have to bury so deep and you can keep the thing going, you keep the story going. That's a great thing. In the introduction to the book, you start by sharing some personal memories about France, including your first trip in 1936. Yes. Perhaps you could just tell us, um, to begin with, a little bit about your own connection to the country and why you wanted to write a history of it. Well, my own connections go back, as you say, to 1936. Um, I spent my seventh birthday in France, uh, September 36, and my mother took me to France the first time, just she and me. And I always remember, of course, in those days, you, you naturally, I mean, you went by boat. There was no, no other way to go. And um, we went, and I was incredibly excited. The first time I'd ever been on a big, big ship, you know, I mean, anything bigger than a rowing boat. And so that was in itself terribly exciting. It was fairly rough, I remember, but I was, I was too excited to be seasick, I think. And then I remember the wonderfully exciting moment when I, I arrived in Paris for the, f- the first time, came out of the Gare du Nord and saw these policemen, you know, in their little white caps, and they all they were carried little white batons in those days, directing the traffic. And then there was the Eiffel Tower, you know, and I said to myself, I'm abroad. This is Paris. You know, and I was so excited. I remember it as if it was yesterday now, you know, and the excitement of it. And, um, and then I went, we went to France three or four times before the war. And then, of course, the war came and that put an end to all that. But uh, then I was one of the first of my friends, I think probably one of the first of my generation, to go back there at the end of the war because uh, Paris was liberated at the end of August 1944, and uh, my father was uh, was made ambassador. He was the first uh, post-war ambassador. And, well, it, was the war was, it wasn't even post-war. The war was still going on. And um, I went out to Paris to, uh, uh, on my Christmas holidays that year. So I was there while the war was still going on, three months after the liberation. Uh, and very few other people, except people in the armed forces, were going there by that time. And it was pretty uncomfortable, I remember. I mean, it was the coldest, it was the coldest winter they'd had for 50 years. And there was nobody had any fuel or heating, except, thank God, the British Embassy, which was the warmest toast. So, uh, you know, I mean, no, nobody ever gave, refused an invitation to the British Embassy. It was the only place that was warm. It was also the only place that had unlimited gin and whiskey, which the French had not seen for five years. So that made us even more popular. And um, we were there for three years, and I would go in my holidays. And, um, you know, I got to know it and spoke the language very fluently and uh, just loved it from the start and always have. You have a remarkable anecdote in the opener about meeting de Gaulle. Perhaps you could share that with us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, de Gaulle was the most difficult man in the world. He was insufferable. Nobody could get on with him. He was perhaps a great man in many ways. Well, he was. We all know that. But, um, I mean, Winston Churchill couldn't bear him. Nobody could bear him. He was, and my father had the most awful time with him again and again and again. And I think I'm the only person who had a, who had a conversation that ended up friendly. It was, it was a very short conversation, admittedly. But... Um, what happened, it was on, I think it was the second anniversary of the D-Day landings on the Normandy beaches. And there was a big ceremony on the beaches and a sort of memorial service and all that sort of thing in the morning. And then everybody went off to a, an old sort of 
Beach Hotel um, for a big, big lunch. And there was all the top brass there, from General de Gaulle down, you know, all the generals and the admirals and God knows who. And I was 17. But anyway, I had to drive up that morning. I remember it very well, because it was the first long drive I'd ever done solo. I'd only just let, got my licence. And I got hopelessly lost and uh, eventually arrived at this great party just as lunch was finishing. And I was ravenously hungry. And there was not a chance of anything. Everything was gone, you know, all over. Everybody was packing up and going home. And I went into the kitchen to see if I could find anything. No good, no, nothing at all. And then I'd been introduced to the goal on my arrival. And I'd been very gratified by the fact that for this snotty-nosed 17-year-old, he had actually stood up. He'd unwound all six foot five, you know, to shake my hand. I thought, well, that's pretty, pretty good, you know, General Gold gets up for me, you know, and all that was rather marvellous. Uh, but I was really the only thinking of my stomach at that point. And then eventually I suddenly saw that in front of the girl there was this, as far as I could see, untouched plate of apple pie. And I said to my mother, I said, do you think the General's going to eat his apple pie? Because if he isn't, I know who is. And my mother said, well, you better ask him, haven't you? And I said, well, I said go on, ask him, you know. And so it, it, was, a, it was a tussle between uh, fear and greed. But greed won. And I went and said, excuse me, Maman General, mais est-ce que vous allez manger votre tarte aux pommes? And he said, no, uh, that's, that's fine, you take it. And then he uh, was, it was a smile. I mean, nobody ever saw a general girl smile. Uh, and um, and then he said, but uh, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I've spilt rather a lot of cigarette ash on it. And I said, I think I realised even when I said it, that it would be an honour to eat the general's cigarette ash. Anyway, that's what I did say, and it went down terribly well. It was a big success I was, and that was the end of the conversation, and the only conversation I ever had with him. But at least it ended up on a happy note, which most of them haven't. You suggest in the book that the average English person has a has a pretty woeful um, knowledge of French history. What do you think are some of the biggest or most exciting stories from French history that we really just don't know that much about in England? I got the feeling that most English people knew practically nothing about it. I mean, I didn't, or even living in France, I, I, I knew very, very little about it. And, um, I mean, we, we're, what do they teach us in France, in, at, at school? They teach us uh, the battles we won of which there were four, Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt and Waterloo. We get those more or less straight. And then we hear a little bit more about Napoleon, perhaps. Maybe a little bit more about Louis XIV, and that's it. You know, so there's quite a lot to, to do. And a lot of it was brand new to me, I have to tell you, you know. There was a marvellous um, scandal in about 1320, uh, where there was the king, Philip IV, had three sons, uh, and the three sons were married to three ladies. And the three ladies were having a tremendous time with three chaps in a very old medieval tower called the uh, La Tour de Nelle, which is on, 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 in Paris. I mean, it stood until the revolution when it was destroyed. And um, it was discovered, actually, by the... Uh, the, the Queen of England, who happened to be the, uh, these girls' sister-in-law, uh, the wife of Edward II, she was there and she uh, discovered what these girls were up to. And she told the king. 
And there was this terrific scandal of the three girls, all of whom were, should have been... I mean, the three husbands were all kings, one after the other. Uh, and they would have all been queens if this hadn't happened, you know. And uh, there were all these sort of great sort of knightly trysts in the Tour de Nel, this sort of very spooky old medieval tower, you know. Alexandre Dumas wrote an awfully enjoyable novel about it. Anyway, then there was this big inquiry. And... Uh, one of the, they were all put in, in prison. Uh, one of them actually got off a bit later on because it was agreed that she'd only watched. She hadn't really been involved. But the other two had been involved, all right. And uh, one of them, they were, both of them were put in prison. One of them uh, came out uh, and was murdered by her husband about two or three days later, uh, smothered. Um, so that he could marry someone else. And I mean, her reputation was in tatters. She wasn't going to be able to be queen anyway, you know, but he got rid of her quickly that way. Um, another one remained for the rest of her life in a cell. Eventually, I think she joined a nunnery, but it was still a cell. And uh, the last one was, 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 was forgiven and came back and, and indeed became queen. So that was rather a sort of a nice, amusing story. But well, Alexandre Dumas thought it was anyway, so it's, what was good enough with him is good enough for me. They're all rather uh, scandalous, these stories that, that, come, that come to mind. There was the very unfortunate story of President Félix Faure, who, who was, who was uh, president of France during the Dreyfus case, about 1895, you know, that sort of time. And... Uh, President Felix Faure died of an apoplectic stroke when in full flagrante, with, uh, on the presidential desk, I may say, uh, with a lady called Madame Marguerite Steinheil, who was extremely beautiful, married to a rather unsuccessful portrait painter. And they had a terrible time because uh, she started screaming. He, he just had a sudden apoplectic stroke. And he got, she got, some of her hair was tied up, and he got his hand caught in some of her hair. So the secretaries came, who knew perfectly well what was going on, they came in and sort of snipped the hair off so that she could freeing her from the president and uh, got her out the back way. And uh, it was all beautifully hushed up. The Weekly Digest, like the Illustrated London News it used to be in this country, it was called Illustration. And um, they had these lovely woodcuts. It was just before photography. And they did these beautiful, beautiful woodcuts. And there was this lovely woodcut of President Felix Faure on his deathbed, like that, in full evening dress. And Madame Faure and all the little Faures all round the bed, you know, doing like this. And we all know it wasn't like that at all. So that was fun. You've definitely got an eye for a colourful character, haven't you? Well, there was, an, uh, there was one other character, President Deschanel, in 1920, and I didn't discover, I didn't know this until I started writing the book. He'd been a very, very distinguished man, member of the Académie Française, written hundreds of books. I mean, very, very grand. And he was made president of France, and that was all wonderful. And it was fine for six months. And then six months later, a, a, a delegation from some girls' school arrived with a big bouquet of flowers for him. And they handed it over, and he said, thanks very much. And then, in the ensuing conversation, he started pelting these girls with the flowers. Uh, they thought, everybody thought that was a bit odd. And um, eventually, anyway, they realised that he had to go. He they walked into a lake with nothing on, this right, I remember. And anyway, they realised he had to go. And, so, and then the, the last thing that happened was that nobody quite knew how, but he was travelling somewhere on the presidential train, 
through France. And somehow he fell out of the window, or maybe he opened the door. Anyway, they found him in his pyjamas. Suddenly, the, you know, I think the, the train wasn't moving fast. May have been stationary, I don't know. And uh, they found him sort of in his pyjamas, wandering around completely hopelessly, not knowing, having any idea where he was at all, you know. Uh, that was the last thing that happened. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. One of the figures that obviously always looms large in French history is Napoleon. Um, historians have waxed lyrical about, was he, you know, was he a dictator? Was he a military magic worker? What is your take on Napoleon? Well, it's the hardest question in the world. And sometimes I think one thing, sometimes, was he a blessing or a curse? It's basically, I'll put it in one sentence, you know. I mean, he was, what he was, unquestionably, I think, He's one of the greatest men who ever lived. Uh, people who had never put pen to paper, the moment, the moment they met Napoleon, they went back and wrote all about it because he, he had such an extraordinary personality, such incredible magnetism. This tiny little man, he was only five foot four, you know, and he just radiated clearly. One would love to have known him. He radiated uh, this sort of charisma. And he was in, uh, uh, not only that, but of course he had boundless energy and, uh, and immense self-confidence. I mean, he knew that whatever he did, it was, was, was going to work, was, was right, you know. And this huge courage. I mean, he, his first, when he first distinguished himself, the siege of Toulon, you know, when he was about 24 years old. 
uh, his commanding officer said, let this man do anything he wants. A, because he's going to get it right, and B, because if you don't, there'll be trouble. Um, you know, he, already he was sort of dominating everybody around him. And then by the time he was 30, he conquered most of Italy and a good deal of Europe, and crowned himself emperor. Uh, kings, of course, you see, had a bad name by then. I mean, the, the last king had been, had been guillotined only 10 years before. And, and so uh, kings uh, were, were unpopular. But emperors were like Roman emperors. I mean, they were different. They were, they were good things. Kings were bad things, but emperors were good things. And so Napoleon uh, decided to be a good thing and, and uh, crowned himself and Josephine emperor. He insisted on the pope coming. Pope didn't want to come at all, I mean, because all the other crowned heads of Europe, you know, were horrified, this Corsican adventurer coming and calling himself an emperor, you know, and all that. Uh, and the idea that the Pope should be present and give it his blessings. On the other hand, the Pope was far too frightened not to. So did. And then was humiliated uh, by not being allowed to do any crowning himself. I mean, he was allowed to bless the couple afterwards, but... Napoleon consecrated himself and then crowned Josephine. And the Pope wasn't allowed to touch the crowns at all, you know. Uh, Napoleon always made it absolutely clear who was boss. And then, I mean, all right, then he, his career was relatively short. I mean, it, it starts in about 1796, or let's say, you know, Waterloo, 1815. 20 years at the, at the most, you know. And yet in that 20 years, he changed the world more than any other single man has ever done. I mean, two dozen countries are still using the Code Napoleon, the legal code, which he more or less invented, named after him. Today, he completely changed the entire map of Europe. Um, he, he radiated the principles of the French Revolution, I mean, liberty, equality, fraternity, and all that, you know. In some way, he, wo he woke up the whole of Europe to these new and exciting ideas, which have which also, of course, stuck until, until the present day. Uh, but on the other side of the middle, he uh, was certainly responsible, I think, for the death of a couple of million soldiers who would otherwise have remained alive. He twice deserted his, his army in the Arab need the first time on the Egyptian expedition, 1798, when he was very, very young, you know. And he had this tremendous, uh, the Battle of the Nile, and Nelson destroyed the French fleet. And um, then Napoleon was there, he tried to turn the whole thing into a victory, but it wasn't, it was really a, a nasty humiliation. Uh, but meanwhile, very exciting things, and very exciting things were happening in Paris. People were changing over, and he, he had to be there. So one night, he just left the entire army in mid-southern Egypt, to get back as best it could. He didn't even tell the second-in-command that he was going. He just wasn't there the next morning, you know, and just, just abandoned it. And he did the same thing in 1813, with, in, oh, in 1812, uh, in Russia. Left the army, left his entire army in that, in that freezing cold. First time he left in boiling, sweltering Egyptian heat. Second time in this bitter Russian cold in order to, to come back and further his own career. So, I mean, that wasn't very nice. What is very curious and still, I think, very mysterious is his sudden, sudden collapse. 
And in Waterloo, of course, Waterloo he was a shadow of his former self. He, he, didn't, he really played very, very little part in the battle. A lot of the time, he, I think he spent uh, just burying his head in his hands um, in terrible pain. He had terrible piles. That was one of his troubles. He couldn't sit on a horse very well by then. And, I mean, if he'd been in good nick, I think he would probably have won Waterloo. I mean, Duke of Wellington said it was a damn close-run thing, you know, and it was. And I think if, if Napoleon had been like he had been ten years before, at Austerlitz or somewhere like that, uh, he'd have made mincemeat out of us. And, uh, and then, I mean, then England would have probably been part of his empire as well. You know, I mean, where would he have ended? Um, it was a, it was a damn close run thing. It was a, it was a, a, a narrow escape. This country would be very very different today if if, if uh, Waterloo had gone the other way. Of course, no history of France can be complete without the revolution, which you do obviously cover. Um, what's your take on it? Um, how events unfolded, but also how we should look back on it. I think uh, well, I mean, there's no question, but the revolution was a disaster. Uh, I'm not saying that the, all the old values should have been maintained. But, uh, no, it, it, things had to change. But they didn't have to change quite the way they did change, with this immense amount of bloodshed. I mean, it, the trouble was that old Louis XVI was a very, very stupid man. And he just didn't, didn't see the point at all. He couldn't understand. He was unbelievably indecisive. Um, and... Uh, he sort of swayed this way and that and couldn't make up his mind, you know. And he was a, he was a pretty good disaster. And Marie Antoinette didn't help either. And she was hated from the beginning, really, because she was Austrian. And then, of course, what nobody could have foreseen was the immediate consequences of the execution of the king, which was the terror when they were guillotining two, three hundred people a day for six months. You know, it's absolutely unbelievable. And they were, they were guillotining people on charges for having said that uh, they thought the monarchy wasn't a bad idea after all, or something like that. That was enough to get your head chopped off. And it was absolutely unbelievable. It went on and on and on. And eventually, of course, it devoured its own children because all the leaders of the revolution all ended on the, on the guillotine, including Robespierre, who was the most sinister and horrible of all of them. Uh, and, and he ended up on the guillotine himself. Uh, he just had his, half his face shot off uh, a few hours before. And it, it, it was the most awful story. I mean, his, his death is really the most horrible of all, as, as he was the most horrible of all the revolutionaries. But, I mean, it ended up in such unbelievable uh, bloodshed, which was quite unnecessary. And it, it spoiled the effects of the revolution, which would, might otherwise have been a good revolution. I mean, it might have landed France much a happier country than it, than it had ever been. But in fact, it, it had the opposite effect. It made France absolutely miserable to the point where the revolutions continued, small revolutions, went on virtually all through the 19th century. You know, it's unbelievable. In the reign of Louis-Philippe, in the reign of Napoleon III, Revolution, revolution, revolution. Up, but the, you know, people putting up the barricades in the streets and people getting murdered, or you know, or, or, or shot in cold blood, or something. Sometimes in hot blood. Um, it was. It's it, the whole story of nineteenth-century France 
is much, much bloodier than I thought it was. I thought than I thought it was going to be. I was very surprised just how much blood was shed in, in the, the subsequent post-revolutionary years between, let's say, uh, well, between uh, the, the coming of Napoleon in 1797. And then, then it was fine. I mean, that was the end of the terror and all that. I mean, then France at least was on a good, even disciplined keel. Uh, but after Napoleon had gone, it, uh, again, nobody could quite keep order. You see, they had revolutions in 1830, they had another one in 1848. The National Guard took over. You had the Commune, which was exactly like the revolution all over again. And that's in 1871. I mean, you know, that, uh, that was very nearly a century after the revolution. And France was still in a mess because of this. Some people would write, have well, have written, you know, thousand-word volumes on one year of the French Revolution, whereas you've got 2,000 years to cover in 360 pages. Yes. Why do you like writing in a kind of big-picture, broad-strokes, fast-paced style? Why, do you, why does that style appeal to you? Well, the first thing to say about that is that deep down, I'm shallow. I'm not an academic. I'm not a professor. I would never call myself a historian. Uh, I write history, but I think that's, in my view, not quite the same. I mean, in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years now, it is actually, I think, almost, that I've been writing, um, except in one case, which is the Normans in Sicily, the first book I ever wrote. Uh, then I was forging rather new ground. But since then, I don't think I've discovered I, I, I haven't pushed the boundaries of knowledge any further back. I haven't discovered any new historical facts. I mean, I, you know, because I don't go uh, plunging into monastic libraries, which I could read even if I did. What I'm interested in doing is telling a really good story as amusingly and as accurately as I can. And I want my, my reward, my ideal reward, is that my readers should say, gee whiz, how fascinating. I never knew that before. I want to be amusing and I want to be readable. Looking at France today, how do you see all these thousands of years' history shaping the way that the country is today? Well, I'm not sure that modern France has been shaped by anything much further back, really, than the revolution. I think it's still feeling the after-effects of that and will continue to do so for a long time to come. Um, but it has had, in the last... 70 or 80 years, I mean, since, since the, let's say, in, in my lifetime. I was born in 1929. Um, it has had the most extraordinary up-and-down history. I mean, there was the disaster of 1940 and the great humiliation felt by a great many French people at the time uh, of, of, the, of the complete collapse of, of the country and their capitulation and the occupied, occupied France and Pétain and all that. And then the splendour, which I, uh, for all his faults, I think you could say the splendour of de Gaulle, because he did come from absolutely nothing and, you know, founded the Free French and got the whole thing going. He did it by being absolutely bloody to people, but, but, but he did it, you know, and you can't take that away from him. And then when he left the picture, it all went very much downhill again. Now we've got this sort of new phenomenon Monsieur Macron, um, who seems to me to be a, a very exciting new, new thing. I mean, I think he's doing extremely well. 
And I think um, he's, 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 I think already, I mean, he's only been in power for whatever it is, less than a year. But it seems to me that he's already given a lot of French people a, a sort of new excitement and pride and, you know, a thrill about the future. And now suddenly they've got this young live wire who promises much and may deliver. Of course, one of the things that Macron has promised is that um, the bio-tapestry is going to come on loan to England yes, for the first time lovely. ever. I was just wondering, yeah, what your thoughts on that were. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, I'm delighted. It, it, it's a, it's a marvellous thing, the bio-tapestry. It's, one thing is, it's so funny. It's hilariously funny. It's like a very, very good comic strip, you know. Um, it's full of marvellous jokes. And the, the pictures are extraordinary. And if we can show it, half as well as it's shown there in Bayou Now, um, it'll be a huge success. In your introduction to the book, you say that this might be the last book that you write. If that were to be the case, what do you want people to take away from it? Well, I don't think... What I, what I want them to take away from it is nothing to do with it, with it being the last book. Uh, I think it's the last book I'm going to write simply because I'm 88 years old and, and um, you know, I mean, I haven't got much time left. Uh, and I, nor, nor, I think, do I have, frankly, the energy to, to do another one. But uh, I, though I, though I, I might start just to keep myself occupied. I don't know. But um, what I want people to carry away from it is what I want people to carry away from every other book I've ever written, I say. That of a thundering good story uh, told as well as I can do it, which they've enjoyed reading and are surprised at how wonderful the story was, you know. That's what I've tried to do all my life, seek out good stories and tell them as well as I can. It's been as simple as that, really. That was John Julius Norwich. France, A History from Gaulle to de Gaulle is published on Thursday, the 5th of April, by John Murray. And you can read a version of this interview in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also includes articles on the RAF in World War II, Alexander Hamilton, Medieval Mystics and Martin Luther King. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats now. And meanwhile, if you'd like to find out more about the story of the Norman Conquest, a key incident in the history of both France and England, then you may well be interested in our Biotapestry event, taking place in Oxford on the 17th of June. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details of that. OK, well, that's about all for today, but please do rejoin us on Thursday when we'll be talking about medieval mysticism with Hetta Howes. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.